0: Well, this morning we're uh, turning back to the book of Exodus, which we've been looking at for most of this, uh, well, the last term, the Easter term. We're going to do three more weeks uh, on the journey. We, we've taken the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, uh, out uh, of Egypt, out of slavery, through the Red Sea. And as we begin today, we're going to read from Exodus 16. As we begin today, uh, the Israelites have entered the desert. Uh, and so I'm going to read from verse 1 of, of chapter 16. And we'll read, uh, we'll read the whole chapter, in fact. So Exodus 16 and verse 1. Let's hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. They, that's Israelites, set out from Elim. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation whether they will walk in my law or not on the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in it'll be twice as much as they gather daily so Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he's heard your grumbling against the Lord but what are we that you grumble against us And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he's heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it's the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take each omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came to Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that's left over lay aside to be kept until the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there was no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath for the Lord. Today you'll not find it in the field. For six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Israel, or so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna for 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is a tenth part of an ephah. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll see what God's word has to say to us this morning. That a man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the Lord. We pray this morning, Lord, as we come to Your word, that we would feed on it, and that it wouldn't just be information to store in our minds, but it would be food for our souls. Uh, manner for our hearts. Uh, bless us, we pray, by the power of your Spirit. For we ask in Jesus' name, Amen. One of the most popular, or the most popular Christian book ever written, excluding the Bible, uh, is Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, have you ever read it? Have you come across it? By far the best selling, uh, I suspect. Uh, it tells of, of a, a young man, uh, not very subtly, called Christian. Uh, And it tells the story of his journey from conversion uh, through to his death, where he enters heaven. Uh, And the whole story has a kind of double meaning. Uh, Pilgrim's progress. It is both about the progress as he journeys, he goes onwards. But it's also about his own progress as he grows in his Christian life. Uh, And on that journey, he, he deals with all sorts of problems, Uh, He gets stuck in the slough of despond. It's kind of like a bog, children, that kind of drags him down. Uh, He meets giant despair who imprisons him in his castle. And Christian begins to think, maybe I'll I'll never make it home to heaven. He gets distracted in in vanity fair, but all sorts of other exciting things pull him off the path. He meets all sorts of weird and wonderful characters en route. And and the the genius of it, uh, the genius of it, It is in its description of the Christian life, the Christian life between coming to faith and arriving safely home. Uh, That is where everyone in this room is now, at least if you already put your trust in the Lord Jesus. If you're still trying to work out what Christianity is about, then I hope this morning you'll you'll see a little bit about what God promises a Christian life would be like. Uh, You're very welcome with us. Uh, but but the people being described in today's passage are those that, that belong to God's people. Uh, and in that sense, for I guess most of us in the room, uh, the Israelites are our spiritual ancestors. Okay, they are us. Uh, time and again, uh, even you see down in verse 1, that the people of God are called the congregation uh, of Israel. Um, this is the church, just the church about 1400 B.C., as we've already talked about a little with olivia's baptism uh, the old testament uh, is not somehow a kind of different thing from the new uh, it's the first part of the story that continues right through to our own day and so what we're learning about with the israelites is the pilgrim's progress all of us are pilgrims uh, we've put our trust in jesus we've been forgiven in that sense our, our salvation is secure okay, god never unforgives someone he doesn't change his mind but we know we're not home yet, and life is hard. Uh, the people, in particular, uh, in verse one, are in the wilderness—the wilderness of sin. Uh, sin, there, by the way, is nothing to do with our word sin. It's just a coincidence. Um, the mount is Mount Sinai, Sinai, and so the wilderness is the wilderness of sin or sin. Okay, so it's nothing about doing anything wrong. They're in the wilderness, though. They're in the desert. They're not in the land flowing with milk and honey. They're not in heaven, to use our uh, New Testament terminology. And so this chapter, and in fact the next two chapters, are all going to be about what it means to travel as a pilgrim, uh, walking to the promised land. What it means, in other words, for us on our journey from now until whatever it is, either we die and go to heaven, or Christ returns. Now, it's really easy as a christian i think to fall into the trap of thinking um, that, that what matters is getting saved hey okay, believe in the gospel and then pretty much uh, i can park park things until i die and god will take me home to heaven and, and we, we lose sight of or we stop thinking about what god might be doing to us on the journey we'd never put it that explicitly would we okay, we're never going no, no one's ever gonna say no christian's ever gonna say oh, i'm just kind of chilling out now to be honest You know, I'm saved, I'm safe, so now I won't really bother. I know we don't say that, but functionally, kind of day-to-day, it's very easy just to sort of go into into neutral, to coast, go on to autopilot. But God is always at work uh, on this journey. Do you see what he's doing? Uh, He's pretty explicit about it uh, in verse 4. We're going to obviously speak about the man a lot. But but when when God first introduces this whole idea of feeding the people in the wilderness, uh, look at his aim in it, verse four. Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people should go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may feed them, care for them, sustain them, no, test them. All those other things are true. Of course he feeds them, he sustains them. Uh, He cares for them. But his purpose is testing. I reckon that's a bit of a surprise. I'm not sure that's the word I expected uh, there in verse 4. It's also a word that might throw us off path a little bit. Well, when God says he's going to test his people, it's not not like a sort of horrible school test, children, where it's kind of pass and fail. Unless you get seven out of 10, you're going to have to go into detention or you're going to have to come back for more lessons. No, it's more like a kind of training. This desert experience is training for God's people. Chapter 16 through 18... Eighteen. Are God training His people to equip them to live well when they get into the Promised Land? I, I, I'm going to test them whether they're walking My Law or not. Are they going to be obedient children? God's training is, is kind of like, or testing rather. It's, it's kind of like if you you wake up January the first, you decide you're you're massively overweight. You've indulged too much at Christmas, um, so you head along to the gym and you say, "Look, I'm I'm a mess. Okay, I'm a." You know, I'm a middle-aged dad, overweight, don't do enough um, exercise, hypothetically. Um, I need you to sort me out. And the the kind of fit young gym instructor, who's very kind and gentle, says, um, OK, I'm just going to run some tests. I'm going to take your blood pressure and and heart monitor. I'm going to see how much you can lift, how fast you can go on the treadmill. He's not doing that so that at the end of it, he can say, nah, sorry, failed. You're not allowed in my gym. He's doing that to train you to test you to to see where you're at in order that he can then well help you improve that is what God is at and about with this test he is training them and the key thing here is he's training them to rely on him that's a big theme of of the chapter he's training his people to rely on him alone Three things uh, to see. Uh, the first is the sign. What is the sign that we're not reliant? <laughs> okay, we should be reliant people, reliant on God alone. What's, what's the sign that we're not reliant? Well, it's grumbling, verses 1 through 3 uh, in particular. So sort of grumbling, the sign we're not a reliant people. Uh, out they go from Elim. Elim, if, we, if we'd read the end of chapter 15, Elim was this, this kind of paradise in the wilderness. Uh, just the verse I'll say before. Uh, We're told that God had brought them, having come through the Red Sea and into the the desert, God had brought them to this this little oasis. And there were 12 pools and 70 palm trees. And the idea is God had provided refreshment for them. What did you need in the desert? Shade and water. 12 pools, because there are 12 tribes of Israel. So symbolically, there's enough water for everybody. 70 palm trees, because there were 70 elders, 70 leaders over Israel. Each leader had their, their palm tree to sit under. God had provided for them, but now they have to get going. Okay, they're out of Egypt, but they're not home. And what happens? Well, they start grumbling. It's not taken long, has it? See the way they put dates in? Date, You read over dates, don't you, in the Bible really quickly, because you know who cares about dates? But it's remarkable. Uh, verse 1, it's the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Okay, so assuming a month is about 30 days, they calculate things a bit differently back then, but more or less, let's call it 45 days. 45 days since they'd seen the Red Sea parted. 45 days, more or less, since the Passover, where they'd seen the Lord pass through Egypt, uh, the firstborn of anyone who hadn't painted the blood over the door dying. And so 46 or 47 days, 48, 49, 50 days since they'd seen all those plagues. Locusts, darkness, the Nile turned to blood. They'd seen amazing things, and already they're grumbling. Okay, imagine if what's forty-five days ago, end of February, early March. Imagine if you'd seen the river air, the river in the city centre, turn to turn red. Okay, the sun had been blotted out. Okay, the sea had been parted, and you'd been rescued. Forty-five days later, God's people are grumbling, complaining. He's not good. He's not going to look after us. It's amazing how fickle our hearts are, aren't they? How quick we are, even when we've seen amazing things, to go back to unbelief. I wonder if you're ever tempted to think, well, if I could just see something really spectacular, then I'd never doubt again, which is not true. People see amazing things in the Bible, and 10 minutes later, they're unbelieving. You get it with the miracles of Jesus. Loads of people saw Jesus do the miracles. Very few of them trusted him. You see three features, I think, particular of this grumbling. Uh, first of all, they, they romanticise the past. I'd see verse three. Would that we died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, where we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Oh, life was great back in Egypt, they say. Now, remember, they were slaves. They were slaves being worked to the bone. At one point, Pharaoh had thrown their children, their eldest boys at least, into the Nile. And here they are saying, oh, it was great, wasn't it? All that meat, all those burgers, all you can eat bread. But it's not true. It's just not true. Any food they were given was in order that they might work harder in slavery. But let's not put too much distance between us and the Israelites. How often do you look back and think, particularly if you're somebody who's come to faith later in life, oh man, life was easy before I was a Christian. Or or even if you can't really remember a time before you are a Christian, you look back, symbolically as it were, to to, to the non-Christian life and envy it. Oh man, I mean, I know it's good I'm a Christian because it means I get to heaven, I'm forgiven and I don't have to go to hell, but man, it would be better if I could be a non-Christian. It would be much better, a much better life if I could just drink what I wanted, (laughs) sleep around, if I was just free. If there weren't these restrictions on me about... who I can date and marry, if there weren't restrictions on me about what I do with my money, if there weren't restrictions about my language and my use of time and and what I need to do. Life would be much better without God. We're not that different from the Israelites. We romanticise the the past. Uh, We're fearful for the future. That's the second feature of this grumbling. Uh, What do they think is going to happen? Verse three again. It's not just that the meat pots and bread was wonderful in Egypt. End of that verse. You, Moses and Aaron, you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill us with hunger. We're going to die. Oh, yes, God did all the plagues. Yes, he did the Passover. Yes, he parted the Red Sea. Yes, he took it to the, us to that oasis. But now we're going to die. I and mean, that was all past stuff. Looking forward, we've had it, haven't we? You can sympathise. You imagine yourself in a red hot desert, About probably about two million of them. They can't see the promised land. There's no maps. There's no, you can't get your phone out and see Google. Oh, look, there's Canaan. Looks nice. We'll, we won't be too long. Uh, they're having to walk by faith into this terrifying wilderness without being able to see with their eyes safety. And so they think, well, I'm, I've had it. We're going to die. But likewise, we look forward in our lives. And, and although we can look backwards and see the way that God's provided for us, made us, uh, forgiven us, provided his son for us. We, we think we're not safe with him. We fear he's not going to look after us. We worry endlessly about tomorrow, about next week. Those kind of what if questions. What if I get ill? What if I never get married? What if my spouse dies? What if I don't graduate? What if I are full of fear? Thirdly, finally on the grumbling, uh, do you see how it's, it's always actually against God? Uh, in verse 2, we read about the congregation grumbling against Moses and Aaron. But Moses and Aaron, are, are, well, they know it's not the case. Okay, they're too sharp. They see through it. Uh, they know that grumbling ultimately is always against God. All our grumbling is against God. Uh, Moses says it uh, explicitly in verse 8, end of verse 8. Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. That's who you're really Really cross at. That's who you really don't trust. It's always easy to blame someone else, isn't it? Okay, maybe the Israelites are just about smart enough not to grumble directly at God. But they will go for Moses and Aaron. It's often the way, by the way, in the Christian life. Okay, we're actually cross with God, but we're gonna have a pop at other people. So my Christian life isn't going very well, or I'm cross with how my sort of spiritual life is going, and I'm gonna project that onto the church leaders I'm going to project that onto my family my husband my wife I'm going to project that onto my small group who aren't caring for me enough but ultimately it's always grumbling against God at heart if God is sovereign if God is in control of all things okay, if he is a heavenly father who, 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 who's planned everything from the beginning then anytime we complain we're saying that God is running the world wrong not as we would do it not as we want it I perhaps ought to say here that there is a difference between grumbling and, and crying out. Uh, time and again in the Bible, people in distress and discomfort cry out to God, Lord, help me. The Psalms are full of these kind of prayers, aren't they? But, but those prayers are, are kind of crying out, if you like, open handed on our knees before God, help me. Lord, why are you doing this? Why am I suffering? One of the most famous psalms. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, Jesus prays it on the cross, but it was the prayer of David before it was the prayer of Jesus, wasn't it? Uh, that's not grumbling. That is crying out open-handed to the Lord. What is going on? I don't understand that Christian life is full of grief. That is not the problem here. This is grumbling. This is an open hand or prayerful hands before the Lord. This is clenched fist. What do you think you're doing? As one person put it, it's an image between groaning and grumbling groaning lord help me i can't handle this i don't know what's going on help help that the lord answers and listens to this is the how dare you what do you think you're doing i do not trust you all grumbling ultimately is a failure to trust god and we say to him look i was better off without you a bit like the israelites with egypt we were better off out there or we say look i'm not safe with you in the future I need to look after myself, really. You're not providing. Uh, Grumbling is a sign we're not really able to rely on Him, or we don't feel we're able to rely on Him. Uh, What's God's answer? Two things. Uh, Two answers. Or He says two things to the Israelites. Uh, The first is to rely daily. To rely daily. This is verses 4 through 21. You might expect, after God's people have complained against him, you might expect that he would turn to them and say something like, how dare you? Look what I've just done for you. Look how I've rescued you. Look how I've conquered your enemies. Look how I'm part of the Red Sea. But what does he do? Verse 4, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. How gracious is that? Even though the Israelites aren't crying out for help, even though they're shaking their fist at him, God says, I'm going to rain bread on you. And he does it in two ways. He provides for them in two ways. Uh, first of all, he gives them a kind of one-off roast dinner. Okay, this is the quail. Uh, it seems to have happened just, just once, more or less. Uh, but at night time, uh, the, the, these little birds, children quail are little birds. Uh, they, they come down uh, and the, well, the people are able to feast. Verse 12, At twilight, you shall eat meat. But most of the passage is concerned not with that one-off roast chicken dinner, but, but rather with the bread. Uh, every morning uh, every morning comes this manna, uh, this famous manna. Uh, what do we learn about this manna? Uh, well, one thing we learn about it is we don't really know what it is. Do you see that in verse 15? Uh, it comes overnight. So verse verse 14 tells us that that the dew's there in the morning, and when the dew goes, there's left behind this fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? Now, the the Hebrew for that phrase, what is it, basically sounds like manna. So that's why we call it manna, because it's a bit like calling, you know, if someone puts some lunch on the table later, uh, and you say, you know, What's that? Like, kids say, what's that? Uh, and mum says, oh, well, have a slice of what's okay, that? It's that kind of thing. Like, what's it? Okay? The, the, the Israelites are eating what's it, but not the horrible crisps. Okay, Mana, what, what is it? Okay, no one really knows. It's obviously some sort of bread, but we don't really know. But it's nice. I think, uh, until preparing this, I think I'd already, always imagined manna to be, you know, better than starving... But a bit like eating naan bread, you sort of naan bread. You buy Morrison's naan bread or something, and you put it in the oven and you cook it out, and it's it's just dry, and you can sort of eat it as long as you dip it in a lot of sauce. But it's a bit grim, and you wouldn't want to live in it all the time. But but this is much better than that. Look at verse thirty-one. Uh, what does it taste like? Right at the end, uh, it was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. It's a treat. I was trying. To, I don't know what. Well, no one knows what it's like but i i was sort of thinking like you know sort of, have you ever had a kind of baklava those kind of like greek treats those sweet pastries it's it's that kind of thing it's delicious and in fact it's a little taste of heaven it tastes like honey where have we heard about honey so far in exodus well honey comes from the promised land remember the land is going to be flowing with milk and honey it's a picture of its richness so day by day, as the Israelites get up, each morning, and this lasts all the way through their journey, each morning they get a little taste of heaven. these sort of sweet treats. There's other stuff for them to eat. They've got cattle, so they'll be no doubt be making cheese and milk and all the rest of it. But daily, God provides for them. And that is the point, really. Uh, verse 4. It is a daily provision. Behold, says the Lord, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people should go out and gather a day's portion, Every day. Uh, Time and again, as we read through the passage, uh, we're told and reminded that it is a daily provision. You ought to collect enough for that day and not try and store it. In fact, when they try and store it, children, do you notice what happened to it? Uh, What happens if you try and keep it? Uh, Well, verse 19 and 20. Uh, Moses says, don't leave any of it till the morning, so no putting it in the store cupboard. Okay, it's not like as a delivery where you can stack it up and I'll have some ready for tomorrow. No, if you try and keep it overnight, as some of them do, bread, it bred worms, okay, or lice in some translation, and stinks. Okay, children, if you've ever looked in the cupboard, or put your hand at the back of the store cupboard and found something like a fruit that you've forgotten about and it's gone mouldy and disgusting. Well, that's what happens to this manna. It's not because God has been cruel But he's trying to teach them a lesson. He wants them to rely daily on him. Not to store up for the future, but each morning trust that he will again provide for them. They're being taught to rely daily. And what's the purpose of this daily provision? Teach them to rely daily. Well, verse 6. Uh, Moses and Aaron said to the people of Israel, "At evening you will know it was the Lord that brought you out of the land of Egypt. When he provides this food, <coughs> the purpose is that you will know him better. And whenever we read the Lord like that in the, in the Bible, it's, this, it's Yahweh. It's God's special name in the Old Testament, at least. It's the name that God gave Moses at the burning bush. If you want to know what I'm like... Well, watch this, says God. And remember, he said to Moses, my name is Yahweh. And he also said, my name is I am. And when we looked at the burning bush, we we said that this name I am shows that God is all sufficient. He was like the fire in the bush. It wasn't burning the bush. He didn't need anything. God has everything he needs in himself. And he showed that. He showed what it means to be I am Yahweh by rescuing on his own. He didn't need Moses' help. He's already shown himself uh, to be their great saviour. But here he's showing himself to be their sustainer. He wants them to know him, in other words. The point of the daily trial, the daily test, the daily training is that God's people learn to daily know him as sustainer. How about you? Uh, You know, I guess, many of you, God as your saviour. Do you know him as your daily sustainer? This is why he walks us through these trials, why he gives us the trial uh, the, the, sorry gifts to the Israelites not just the manna but also the desert both the gifts see if it wasn't for the desert they wouldn't be driven to rely on God if the journey from imagine you left Israel uh, and all along the routes to, to Canaan the promised land it was just oasis followed by market stores followed by kind of Aldi Tesco uh, all the way home we well, wouldn't need to rely would you Okay, camels for everybody. Two million camels. Okay, servants fanning you. The, the temptation would be to, to think, well, actually, we've got this, Lord. Thanks for the rescue. Thanks for being our saviour, Yahweh, our saviour. But actually, as for sustainer, I've got this. That, I think, is, is most of our problem, okay, in, in, in our kind of world. Uh, most of us, I guess, have grown up in the West. Most of us have never lived on the streets. Most of us have never been starving. Most of us think we can supply our own daily bread. Thank you, Lord. We know we need Jesus to be... Yahweh, the saviour. But we don't really need him to be Yahweh, Jesus, the sustainer. Uh, We are saved by grace alone, but we think we can be sustained by ourselves. We don't believe in God being the one who sustains us by grace alone. Think of the Lord's Prayer. Why did Jesus teach us to pray, give us today our daily bread? Well, surely because he expected... Well, expect it to be a daily prayer. Now, is, is that a prayer you pray daily? Lord, feed me today. Whether you use the exact words of the Lord's Prayer or not, it's not, I don't think, particularly the point. But you daily come for him, asking for your physical provision. But not just physical provision. If, if that Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily prayer, tells us that the prayer was daily, that means that Jesus expected all the other parts of the Lord prayer, Lord's Prayer, all the other petitions to be daily too. In other words, the Lord's Prayer is really... Uh, Our Father in heaven, hallowed today be your name. By your name be praised today. Lord, let your kingdom come today. And so we pray for the advance of God's kingdom today. I need help today to be a good witness at work. I need help today to be courageous in what I say and how I act in order that your kingdom might go forward. Your will be done today. Make me obedient today with what I've got to do. You know what I'm like when I... Uh, get in that class, teaching those kids. You know what I'm like with those colleagues. You know what I'm like with, with those friends when we go out in this evening. So today, would your will be done in my life? Forgive my sins today, leading me not into temptation today. We're meant to feed daily. That's why Jesus called himself the bread of life. Uh, years later, 1,400 or so years after the Passover, another group of Israelites, would be sat in another desert place, as it's described in the Gospels. And Jesus would take some loaves and just keep feeding them miraculously with his bread, deliberately echoing a manna in the wilderness. And he ended by saying, I am the bread of life. You need to feed on me. Believe in me. And I will both care for your physical needs so you don't need to worry about tomorrow. But also you need to feed on me Spiritually to keep you going on this pilgrimage. Rely daily. When um, both in Derby, which is my last church and here, uh, it takes a little bit of time to get things in place. Okay, so you start off, we started here with about 17 of us, I think there was, three years ago, three and a half years ago. And there's all sorts of things you'd love to do. Sometimes people ask me, you know, what, what does church do? And there's all sorts of things we'd love to do, but you, you just have to do things one at a time because you're small and you're growing, you're new, you're not established. One of the things we've done is put elders in place just recently, or nearly. It's like we're engaged, we're not quite married. Um, they're not quite ordained yet, but they're, they're beginning to do the work. Uh, and same in Derby, where elders do these sort of visits, the pastoral visits, uh, try and get in touch slowly, one by one with the congregation. How's things going? And I, the same thing happens in both churches. And I'm convinced if I do a 100 other jobs, it will always be the same. And that is, you go and talk to people, you know, how's it going? How's things going? How's Christian life going? 99% of people straight away start talking about whether they read the Bible that day or not. Uh, I really should read the Bible more and pray more. I suppose like it's sort of Ofsted (laughs) coming in to to test you on that. Uh, Most of us feel that our devotional life is not where it should be. I would just imagine that if instead of this being a church with with elders, shepherds, this was um, a health club. And you all come to listen to my... Tips on a healthy life and diet, uh, fitness, all the rest of it. Okay, so instead of getting a, a shepherding visit uh, about you know, how things are going spiritually, you get a, you get a visit about, about diet. i say Peter or Matt, whatever, phones up. How's it going? How are things going? I am absolutely sure that no one would say back, oh, I know I ought to have eaten this week, but I just haven't. Do you know what? I just... Like, I can see... I can see the food there on my shelf, I can see the chocolate cake, I can see the cereal, I can see the roast beef, but ugh, I just haven't got to it this month. In fact, if I'm absolutely honest, I haven't really got to it this year yet, just not been eating this year, if I'm absolutely honest. No, I ought to, but I, mm, yeah, I should force myself to, shouldn't I? You don't force yourself to eat, do you? <laughs> you eat because you know you need to and you eat because you want to. So too with Jesus, the bread of life. This sustaining grace of God, we need it. And and God wants us to come to him daily in prayer, at least, whether we're reading something new each day. Well, that's another topic, another time. But we come to him daily uh, to pray to him, to ask for his help, for his strengthening, his feeding. Both because we need to, it's our duty, but also because it's meant to be a delight. He's trying to feed us good stuff, a taste of heaven. I know it doesn't all feel like that. So don't panic. If you, if you come to God in prayer that morning and, and read a little psalm or whatever and, and you don't feel any different, don't panic, that's all right. You know, we're up and down. And, but the idea is him giving us a taste of heaven, strengthening us with good things. It's meant to be a delight. God's law is always like that. Have you just become casual? Okay, are, are you coming to God daily in prayer? Or you are basically treating life, your your earthly life and your spiritual life as if you've kind of got it? Or even just focusing on your earthly life and and more or less the spiritual life of you, your family, your kids. It's just gone off the radar. Don't get caught out in the desert. Don't starve to death. Die of thirst. Come to him because one way or the other he will get you into that desert experience where you will be desperate enough to cast yourself on him. That is what the Lord wants for you because it's good for you. Come to him now. There's much more we can say about the manna. But we don't really have time. So I just want to point out one last thing before we close. If we're meant uh, to rely daily, so too we're meant to rest weekly. Do you see, do you notice when we read it? uh, Particularly in verses 22 through 30, the way the manna worked. It was given each day, but on the sixth, uh, or seventh day rather, the Sabbath day, there was no manna. The idea was you collected twice as much the day before. God provided for you. It wasn't a horrible day, the Sabbath, a day of starvation and grimness. No, it was a day of rest. Uh, verse 26. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. Again, it's all about reliance. You've got to trust me for that seventh day. Take double on the day before and trust trust me even when it doesn't turn up the next day it is a day of rest reliance Uh, notice first of all that this sabbath principle this day of rest is there before we get to the 10 commandments sometimes people say oh the whole sabbath thing it's just a a moses and israel thing 10 commandments the law given at Sinai, all the rest of it no this is before all that and notice too that it's god's pattern uh, which is it is it that on the on the seventh day the Israelites were forbidden from collecting it or is it that on the seventh day there just was no manna and therefore they were told not to collect it We'll see verse 27 on the seventh day some of the people went out to gather but they found none the point is this is not a day just for Israel to rest but God is resting he's not doing it he's not providing on the seventh day he's not going to give them the food to go and gather up because he's already provided on the sixth day takes us back to creation. This Sabbath pattern, this seventh day of rest, six days and then a rest day, it is woven into creation. It's not something just for Israel in the Old Testament, like say the food laws about not eating prawns or whatever. Uh, This is as much part of creation as marriage or work. It's given in the garden because it's patterned after God. God created in six days and then rested. He's doing the same here, creating the food supernaturally, six days, and then resting. And we're meant to follow that pattern. And that, that continues. <laughs> the day moves as Christ raised, rises from the dead. But in Revelation 1, we, we read about the Lord's Day. Sunday, as we would call it. We saw that on Easter Sunday that the resurrection appearances occur on the Sunday. Every time we, we read about churches meeting in Acts, anytime time we're told what day it is, it is the Sunday, the first day of the week. It is part of what it means to be created that we're meant to work in this pattern. Six days work and then a day of rest. A day that's given for refreshment and for worship, and taking that day is a sign that we trust God. But using that day for rest and for worship, wrong for our normal work. Whether that's my studies at university, my my, my housework, if I mostly my work is at home, might be my sort of preparing for the work ahead, uh, for the week ahead. If I you know I don't know teach lessons or whatever it might be, Sunday is not meant to be for that. It's a gift, not a, not a burdensome command. It's a rest. Think of the poor Israelites slaving away for years, no days off. Slaves don't get days off. And suddenly they're told, You've got a day off every week. Don't have to do anything. Rest, worship, relax. But some of us can't stop even on Sunday. I've got to do my assignments because they're due on Monday. I've got to do the housework because the house is so untidy. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to. As if, as if life won't work unless I'm working. Again, it's a sign we're not willing to rely on God. It might also be a sign we're undisciplined on the other six days. Many of us have only got five days a week work. We're fantastically fortunate compared to most cultures. The pattern of the Bible is six days work and then this Sabbath day. How are you using that Sabbath day, this Sabbath day, this Sunday? Is it a day of rest and worship? Churches historically met morning and evening. Uh, enjoy the day together. Rest and worship. Rely daily. Rest weekly. Because the Lord will provide. He has got it. You may feel out of control, but that's okay. He will provide for you. And that's what we're going to celebrate now uh, in this meal. Uh, this meal that we celebrate weekly, the Lord's Supper, uh, is a meal of bread, of remembrance. Uh, As you notice right at the end of our passage, some of the manna doesn't go off. It's kept in the Ark of the Covenant. It's it's kept uh, as a memorial for them. Uh, Verse 32. This is what the Lord commanded, let an omer. It's about a Coke bottle full, big Coke bottle full. uh, Be kept for your generations, so they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness. Here is bread that reminds them of God's provision. Uh, Today, uh, we eat not manna, uh, but we eat the bread that reminds us that God has provided the bread of life for us, the Lord Jesus, whose body was broken for you, whose blood was shed. And therefore, in whose hands you are safe, on whom you can rely, to whom you need to come daily for grace and weekly for rest, refreshment what we get in our worship services.